Well, we certainly are grateful for those who have given their lives for our freedom and to give us, uh, among another, a number of freedoms, the freedom to worship, and we're grateful for that. So we are going to continue exercising that freedom as we hear God's Word preached. If you would, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. As you're turning there, I want to ask you if you can think of a time where you have been wronged in some way by someone. If you're here in this room and a human, and you've been through any amount of life at all, I bet that it's true that you've been wronged by someone at some time. Is that correct? Yes? All of you? Okay. So someone has wronged you at some point in life. Good. I'm glad we're on the same page. That's not just me. For a lot of us, the way that we deal with that, there's really three ways to deal with it. And maybe for you, you're only aware of one way, because maybe growing up, there was only one way in your family that you dealt with conflict, right? And maybe, or maybe you, you had one way growing up, and then you get married, and all of a sudden you realize, whoa, hold on, there's a different way to deal with this, because myself and my spouse, we are approaching this totally differently. Right? I know that that's true for Sarah and myself, because the families we grew up in dealt with conflict a lot differently. And so whenever we get married, we go, there's a different way to do that? And then the debate goes on as to which way is the right way. Before us, when we get into a conflict, if someone wrongs us, if someone is hateful or hurtful to us, there's a few ways for us to respond. There's one way that says it didn't happen, right? This is just sweeping it under the rug, correct? That's one way. There's another way um, where you don't let them ever forget that it happened, right? It's like the exact opposite. It happened. I'm never, ever, ever letting you forget it. And then there's a third way, and maybe there's more ways in there that you can think of, but for this morning, we're going to think about the third way, which is to seek what we're going to call reconciliation, okay? There's this idea, and you can see that we're talking about reconciliation today. Let's see what God has to say about that in his word. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting at verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see the new has come. Everything is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Father, as we consider your word this morning, our prayer is you would help us to think rightly about you and how we've sinned against you and about the reconciliation that you offer through the cross. Help us to think rightly of that and of the calling you've given us to reconcile others to you. Lord, may what is said here today uh, be no mere opinion of a mortal man, because we know that any authority that comes from this pulpit is not authority that is mine, but it's authority that is given from you and is only as far as your word is being proclaimed and preached here. Convict us where we need conviction from this text this morning. Encourage us where we need encouragement. Make us like Christ. I pray this in Christ's name.
Amen. Our main idea this morning is this, that God pays the price to reconcile us to himself, and he calls us to do the same. I would normally say it twice, but it's right there on the screen for you if you want to write it down. There's a price being paid, and he pays it. We're going to work through the text and see how he does that. So first we're going to see this point, okay? Real simple. We are reconciled. And we see this here in verse 17. He says, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. So let's see how this reconciliation. And to give you a definition of reconciliation, because maybe that's not a term you use a whole lot, it's just this idea of two parties, two groups, two people who are at odds with one another, who are enemies of one another, who the relationship is broken in some way, and it's being brought back together. He says here, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. So the therefore, we know when we see therefore, that you always look backwards to see what it's therefore, right? The therefore. So what's the therefore? As we look back and see, we don't have time to go through all of this, but he's saying we don't know anyone from a worldly perspective anymore, right? And before that even says that Jesus died and he died for all. He died for all kinds of people. The significance Paul is pushing here is he wants people to understand that Jesus did not die just for the Jewish people. Jesus died for all kinds of people. Gentiles, which is the vast majority of us in this room, if I was willing to bet on it, are Gentiles. We're not Jews by our heritage. He died for us. So now we don't see people from a worldly perspective, because all these differences that we have between us, they're swallowed up in that salvation that we share. So that leads him to say, this in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, Jew, Greek, anyone, fill in the blank of whatever it is that you think makes you different, unlovable, maybe more special, whatever it is, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. So he starts talking about this new creation idea. This is something that, well, it's core to what we believe. Because see, when someone becomes a Christian, something within them changes dramatically, right? Or it should. When you become a Christian, the old you passes away. And the new, he says, has come. And it comes through faith. This is where in John 3, this whole idea of the new birth, Jesus talking to Nicodemus and he says, you have to be born again. Well, that's like an intense statement, right? Born again? What do you mean that to be born again? Something about you has to change totally. There's an old that's passing away, and there's a new that's coming. But unfortunately, church, here's the reality of it. There are many Christians who don't live as though the old has passed away. Whatever it is that we do, we we come up front, we sign a card, we pray a prayer, here or at some revival or at some conference or at some youth camp, and then we keep on living like we were. The difference is that now we kind of feel bad about it, right? But is that the old passing away? That's a different feeling, but that's not the old passing away. And I'm not saying that we're going to get everything perfectly here on this earth. We have to understand something. That God has called us to be living as people who are new, for whom the old has passed away. So how does this new creation happen, though? Because, you know, we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves, right? So I'm just made new. What exactly causes that to happen? Well, here's what he says. This is where we're really going to settle in. 
in verse 18. He says, everything is from God. Another way of saying that, when he says everything, some translations will say all these things. All of this that I've talked about before, all of it comes not through you. Not through how good you are. Not through the intensity of your faith, where you're just like, I'm going to just believe as hard as I can. It's not the intensity of your faith. It's the object of your faith. All of this is from God who has reconciled us to himself. He does it. He's the one. It's all of him and it's none of us. But so we're reconciled. So what does that mean? Why exactly do you and I need to be reconciled with God? That's the question. That's the question that so many people in this world are asking. Because they don't understand that there is this gap there. And it's not just, I mean, it's not this wide. It's an infinite gap between God's holiness and our sin. How does this new creation happen? He does the reconciling and he has to do it because we are enemies of God. Paul says in Romans chapter 5 that we're enemies. A lot of us like to think of ourselves as just, we're neutral, right? Like God's not really pleased with us, but we've, you know, he's not pleased with us, but we're not all that bad, right? If you've ever shared the gospel with someone, one of the hardest things to convince someone of is that they actually have the need for the gospel, right? Because the idea is that I'm just not all that bad. But Paul says in Romans that you're not neutral before Christ. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, that you're actually an enemy of God before that reconciliation happens. Now, that's an intense thing to say, right? An enemy. Most people we talk to say, well, I, I like the idea of God. Paul says, no, that's not the case. You and him are at enmity. You want nothing to do with him. You may think you do, but it's a God of your own imagining. Here's what it says. But he reconciled. So, everything is from God who reconciled us to himself. He's the one who does it, but it says he did it not counting their trespasses against them. Now think about this for a second. What does it mean that God doesn't count their trespasses against them? Does he just take all of your sin and gather it up, and then he just goes, poof, it's gone. A lot of us like to think of it that way, right? Poof, it's gone. No more sin. He just drops it. He just forgets about it. We talk like that when conflict happens, right? Especially, um, especially me as a guy, whenever conflict happens, I don't want to deal with it. Someone comes to me and I'm like, yeah, you know what, don't worry about it. Just forget it, right? Just forget it. Don't worry about it. Pretend like it didn't ever happen. But God can't do that. He can't just pretend like it never happened. For us, whenever someone comes to us and they tell us, hey, you've wronged me, it feels like something that's almost weakness to admit that you've done something to me that has hurt me and we need to get this fixed. And I think this is something that everybody struggles with. I think it might be something that men struggle with even more. For me to say, listen, you've wronged me, you've hurt me, you've done something that uh, has rubbed me the wrong way, whatever it is, it feels like weakness to say that because you're saying I've been hurt. And a lot of us like to be unhurtable, if you will. We have to understand that God is willing to come down and say, listen, you've sinned against me. And God is the opposite of weakness. And as he says that, we need to look at him and say, wow, I can say that. And if we were able to say that, 
Christians and churches might be able to get somewhere with our relationships. Let's look at someone and say, you've wronged me in this way, and I'm going to come to you in the spirit of Matthew 18 and try to start making reconciliation and finding out what is the problem here. But something has to happen. Because if you just say, poof, it's gone. We're not doing things the way that God does it. Here's what he says in Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 through 7. I want to encourage you. This is such an important passage that doesn't get talked about a whole lot. It's one that, on the face of it, if you were to look at it, almost feels like it might conflict with itself. But I promise you, it doesn't, because God's word is never in conflict with itself. There may be tension on it where there are things that are pulling. And this idea over here of God's grace is pulling against the idea of his law and justice. And we have a hard time reconciling that and figuring that out. It's never in conflict. It can be in tension. Beyond our ability to understand, but it's never in conflict. Here's what he says in Exodus 34. I'm going to find it real quick because I didn't mark it. But all of y'all have it on there, so you don't have to turn. The Lord came down in a cloud, and he stood with him there, and he proclaimed his name, the Lord. The Lord passed in front of him. This is Moses. And here's what he says to him. The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Good, right? Is that good? We're glad of that, right? But then here's the thing that's the tension. Look at verse 7, or sorry, um, middle of verse 7. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished. Now hold up now. Because he just said that he forgives people, right? He forgives iniquity, he forgives rebellion, he forgives sin, he maintains faithful love. But he won't leave the guilty unpunished. Bringing the father's iniquity on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation, which is totally another conversation for another day, but I want to focus in on this. How can our God say that he forgives iniquity, he forgives rebellion, and he forgives sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished. Because this feels like it's in conflict. You have to do the one or the other, right? Here's what our God does. See, we have to understand that he is a God who forgives. He looks at you and he says, you did this, you sinned against me, and there's nothing you can do to make it right now. But he doesn't go and poof, blow it away. And we're glad that he doesn't. Because you know what it would make God if he just said, poof, don't worry about it anymore? What would it make him? Completely and totally unjust. You say, well, what do you mean? He can't he be whatever he wants to be? I want you to imagine this for a minute. Imagine if for you, someone, for some reason killed your child, killed your spouse, killed your parent. And they did it on purpose. They sinned against them, they sinned against you in that way. And you went to a judge, and the judge said, well, you know, I know that this price needs to be paid because they've sinned against this person and and the family in, in some way. And they said, but you know what? I'm feeling gracious today. So don't worry about it. All of a sudden, what is that judge? They're unjust. Because the penalty for that sin, that crime, has not been paid. God does not 
let sin off the hook. He doesn't. But instead, he transfers it. Instead, he allows a substitute to take it. And that's what we see going on here. So jumping back to 2 Corinthians 5, we're going to jump down to verse 21 and see what he's doing. He made the one who didn't know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you're sitting there and you have a pencil or a pen, I'd encourage you to take them just beside that verse, maybe bracket that verse and say the great exchange, because that's what's happening here. This is the great exchange. This is what theologians have called this for, for hundreds of years now. There's an exchange that's happening, because God cannot just say, don't worry about it. Or he would no longer be God. And our desire for him to just say, don't worry about it, means that we're trying to make him in our image. See, it says there's Christ, the one who did not know sin. There's only one in this world who never, ever, ever knew sin. And that's Jesus Christ. He is fully God, which makes him perfect. And he's fully man, which means that he can take our sin upon himself, and that he can die a death that we couldn't die. Christ becomes sin. He becomes the sin offering. He takes it on himself. And then he gives us Christ's righteousness. Imagine, though, if you're having trouble wrapping your mind around this, that there's a king. And you have a king And you want to be able to go into that king's court, see that king, to have an audience with him. But there's one stipulation. You have to be clothed in the best. You can't just run in there in gym shorts and a t-shirt and chacos, right? You have to be clothed in the best kind of garment. But here's your problem. You don't have that, right? You're like, man, I just wear shorts and t-shirt and chacos every day. Right? And if I could, I would. That's me, you know? You say, I don't have the best. I don't have some fancy clothes. For you, though, you say, and even worse than that, let's say, though, it's not that. Let's say instead you have rags, right? You have stuff that's falling apart. You have clothes that have nothing going for them, and if you wash them one more time, they're just going to disintegrate. <laughs> Anybody have t-shirts like that and you've worn them so many times about the disintegrate? That's what you have. For you, you can get rid of those clothes, but is that still going to give you what you need to go in the presence of the king? Now that just means you don't have clothes anymore. That's not good. See, what has to happen is not only do you have to get rid of what you have, you have to take on the best. That's the exchange that's happening. Because understand this. If Jesus were to only take your sin away, would that make you righteous? And it feels like, well, yeah, of course, that would make me righteous. I don't have any sin anymore. At best, when your sin is taken away, that makes you neutral. It makes you just kind of blank slate. No more sin. But that's not what he's talking about here. It's not just a removal of sin. It is a putting on of his righteousness. It says, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We might take on his righteousness. And so it's like you go to someone and you say, listen, I can't do anything with these clothes. If I wash them one more time, they're going to fall apart. they got patches on them. And they say, that's fine. I will take them from you. 
Once again, if they, just, if they take your clothes, you just don't have any clothes, and that's bad news. And he says, and actually, I have the best, the best, the best pants, the best suit, the best whatever, and I can give it to you. An exchange has to happen. God's not looking for neutrality from you. He's looking for Christ's righteousness, and Jesus gives it to you. But how does he do it? Because he's the substitute. Because he's the one. See, whenever it says that God will not forgive the guilty, or that he will not let the guilty go unpunished, your guilt didn't just go poof. Your guilt had to be punished. And it was put on Christ so that at the cross, it is paid for. God's wrath is poured out on Jesus, and it's paid for. And then you're given his righteous record, so whenever you walk into the throne room of God, he looks at you, and he says, look at this one who has the perfect record of my son. Jesus becomes a substitute, and he substitutes his righteousness for ours. So whatever it is, if you're here and you're not a Christian, and you say, God can't possibly forgive me for whatever it is, fill in the blank. Understand that he can and he will. And that Christ on the cross took that from you and gives you the righteousness you need. If you say, I am a habitual liar, Christ took that, lie, that, lie, that state of being a habitual liar, put it on himself, and he gave you truth-telling, honesty. You say, I've not been pure in my life physically. Christ takes that on, and he gives you purity. If you say that I've been a hateful person, a selfish person, he takes that on himself and he gives you love, selflessness. When you walk into the throne room of God, he doesn't see the impurity, the sin. He sees Christ's righteousness. But we can't forget that Christ paid a price to make this reconciliation happen. And there's always a price to pay. Tomorrow is Memorial Day, and because it's Memorial Day, we are thinking today, and hopefully tomorrow, we're not just grilling out tomorrow, we're actually thinking about the fact that there are men and women who have died in service of this country, of its citizens. And as you think about that, I hope you are humbled by the fact that the ultimate price was paid. There is no greater price that a human can pay. And I hope as you think about that, though, you understand that there was a price that was paid that was greater, that was taken on by Christ. He had to pay a price because his price was not just death. For us, we die, and, you know, we die and we die for our own sins. But Christ takes the sins of the world on himself and on the cross, all of God's wrath, not just for your sins, not just for my sins, but of all sins are poured out on him. And if you imagine the, wrath of, the righteous wrath of God for one person, and then you multiply it by however many people, that's the wrath of God. There's a price that's being paid by Jesus. The price he paid was his death. There's a price we have to pay for reconciliation. And it's often our pride. We'll talk to that in a minute. Christ is reconciled. He has reconciled us, and this is the good news for you. And maybe if you've not thought about it in a while, I hope that you are put into a state of awe because of what God has done for you. He doesn't just say, all right, well, I'm just going to wipe the board clean. Something has to happen. We are ones who are reconciled, but there's another part to this passage. Because we are ones, Christians, who have been reconciled, we have to be ones who are reconciling. 
We are doing this ministry that he has given us. And it says twice, he has committed the, ministry, the message of reconciliation to us, and he has committed to us the message uh, and ministry of reconciliation. He says it twice here. So we need to understand this. He has given us this ministry, this message that says, you are far from God, but you can be brought back to him. But how does he say it? Look at verse 20. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. So when you think about an ambassador, what does an ambassador do? Think to yourself for a moment and say, maybe you've never thought about it before. What does an ambassador do? Someone who goes to another country, and their job is to represent their home country when they're in another country. We have ambassadors here in America who maybe are from France, right? They're not American citizens. They're French citizens who are representing France to our country. See, when we're made a new creation, like he says in verse 17, we have a new citizenship. This world no longer is your home. It's not. You're not a citizen of earth anymore. You're a citizen of heaven. Your king is the God of the Bible. You're an ambassador. An ambassador makes the case for their country's position. They say, hey, listen, here's our country. Here's what we're doing. Here's what we're about. And they go and they tell the other country that. Unfortunately, though, for a lot of us today, we're not making the case for our country's position. Instead, we're going around and we're saying, well, yeah, I mean, I'm a citizen of heaven. You know, I'm following Jesus. He's my true king. And I'm really sorry for all the things that he says and does and he's about and that he thinks sin is and that he says that he's the only way to heaven. And we, have, we almost apologize for our country's position, don't we? What an unfortunate way to be an ambassador. If you're an ambassador for your country and you go to another country and all you ever do is say, well, you know, I think my country's okay, but nothing we ever do is right. Is that the kind of ambassador that God has called us to be? Absolutely not. I'm afraid that a lot of us who claim the name of Christ, instead, we think that we're ambassadors for him. We think that we're out there and representing him to the world, but we actually can't. Because a lot of us still consider this world our home, and we still think that this world and its ways are better than God's ways, and that should concern us. Because if that's the case, if this country is our home, if this world is our home, that means we're not a citizen of the next world. We're not a citizen of heaven. But if you're a true Christian, you have to understand that God is making his appeal through you. And he says that here, right? Since God is making his appeal through us. Please understand, God is sovereign to bring about salvation when and how he wants, and he does not need you or me to go do it. Amen? But he has ordained that we would. He has called us to do it. And he says, my means, my way of bringing people into the kingdom is that you would go and that you would make an appeal to them on behalf of your home country and say, listen, the world that you're living in, it's falling apart. The world that you're living in does not have what you think you need and what you actually do need. It has what you think you need, but it doesn't have what you actually need. The world that you're living in is backwards and sinful and has nothing good to offer with its way of thinking. But my country does. And you can come and be a citizen of my country. 
And God is making his appeal through us. He has ordained that we would preach and tell the gospel to others and that they would respond. The question is, are we doing that? If we have truly been reconciled, has it changed us? Church, please do not be the kind of person who, once you get what you need, you say, good, all right, I'm saved, I got my get-out-of-hell-free card, and I'm good, just waiting for Jesus to come back. Don't bask in the good that God has done for us. Actually, do bask in the good that God has done for us, right? And that's worship. Do that, but don't do that alone. Your purpose, your calling on this earth is to not just be the frozen chosen, but it's to be those people who are ambassadors, representing your home country and saying to people, please, you are pleading with them and saying, please be reconciled to God and here's how it happens. If you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, and I know that most of us here are, I want to encourage you that when there's a conflict that comes up, please don't pretend like nothing happened. Something happened. We need to learn this in all of our life. But understand that there's a conflict between you and God and that something happened. Something changed. A price was paid to bring you into God's family. Reconciliation was made for you, and now reconciliation needs to be made through you. It was made through a sacrifice. It was made through a death, and a price was paid. If you are going to be part of God reconciling the world to himself, a price has to be paid. Christ paid the price to reconcile you, but there's a price that we pay too. There's a price that we have to pay Not to make it possible, because that's what Jesus did, but to make it happen. There's all these things in this world that we love, right? Think about the comforts that you have. The hobbies that you love to spend all this time on. And you do all this reading about. The relationships that you put effort into. Maybe some are good, maybe some are bad. The money that you maybe are aiming to get as much of as you can. The retirement that you're looking forward to and saying, I just can't wait until I get this and I can take it easy and just check out. The career that you're putting all of your mind and heart and soul into. And lastly, and most importantly, your reputation. There's all these things that we have and that we love. And we say, this is so good. Look how good this is. Look how good this money that God has given me is, this career that he's given me, this hobby he's given me to enjoy, this reputation. And understand that God has called you to pay a price. Christ paid a price to, to, to make reconciliation possible. But we pay a price to make reconciliation with others to God happen. And that price is laying down those things. The comfort. The hobbies. The money. Whatever it is that is getting in our way. And mostly the reputation. And pleading with people and saying, please, Be reconciled to God. Because once you start really doing that, if you've ever known somebody who does that, usually you respect that person, right? That person who is constantly sharing the gospel with people and pleading with them. Do you respect that person who you see do that, Christian? Yes. But you look at them and you say, I guarantee without fail, there's not a person who does that. Who you look at and say, man, that's so great that they do that. I'm so glad they do it. But sometimes they make themselves a little awkward. They make the situation a little awkward, right? Is that right? Because all of a sudden... It's like, where did this come from? They're pleading with someone and saying, please, be reconciled to God. Is that your plea? Two people.
Are you pleading or are you just hoping that your child will come to Christ, that your coworker will come to Christ, that your spouse will come to Christ? Whoever it is, fill in the blank. Are you hoping? Are you saying, just thinking positive thoughts? Are you even doing that? Are you even praying? Or are you pleading with them? Are you pleading, first of all, with God for their souls? So many of us want people to get saved, we won't ask God to do it. But if God's sovereign to bring this about, we know that he has to be the one to initiate all of this. Are you pleading with God and saying, God, save this person? And are you pleading with that person who's not a believer yet? Because you understand that what is for them, if they don't find that reconciliation, is hell. Eternal separation from him. If the reconciliation never happens, then they are separated from God's goodness and love. Eternally. Please, plead with unbelievers. Because God has reconciled you, plead that God would reconcile others to him. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer yet, you're someone who maybe you grew up in church and you, you think the whole thing's good, but maybe for you, you just think it's moralism. You think it's just trying to do the best I can to not lie or cheat or steal. Or maybe you're here and you, you've always thought the whole thing's a sham um, and you think that, you know, we're just here for your money, whatever it is that you think. Whoever you are here and you're not a follower of Jesus, please understand something. You and God are aren't good. There is no neutrality with God. You're either with him or you're not. And if you're not, then you're his enemy. That's all. His enemy. Romans 5.10, the rest of it says, and I've referenced it once already, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more having been reconciled, will be saved by his life. See, you now, if you're here and you're an enemy of God, you've been reconciled to him through the death of Jesus. And we've talked all about that. That's what the whole sermon's about. But understand that now much more, you can be reconciled. And you can be saved through the life that he lived. I'm pleading with you, if you're here and you're not a believer, be reconciled to God but know that it's not your doing. It's his doing. Know that he just won't say, poof, gone. See you later, sin. Understand that it only happens if you say, I'm putting all that I have into my trust in Christ. That I know that he is the one who died to be the substitute. I'm pleading with you this morning, please, don't let another day go by without trusting in Christ and knowing that you can be reconciled with him. No longer an enemy, but a son or a daughter. We're going to pray, and after we pray, we're going to sing this song, I Need Thee Every Hour. And I hope that for you, as you sing this song, you are thinking about the fact that you do need God every hour. Christian, you need him every single hour because you needed him to start the Christian life. You needed him to begin it with you. And, you need, and you, so as you needed him then, you need him now, all the time. And if you're an unbeliever, I hope that you will sing this song and hear as the words are sung and as you hopefully sing them, understand that you need him. Every hour that passes is an hour where you need him. And every hour that passes is one hour shorter until the time you stand before him. Please be reconciled to God.